Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for high society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. My guest today on the podcast is Tom Clavin, a longtime resident of East Hampton who has become a very successful novelist. His most recent book is called Blood and Treasure, which came out in March or April. And he has another book coming out in November called Lightning Down, which is a World War II book. This year is the 70th anniversary of the sinking of a ship in Montauk called the Pelican, a fishing boat. When uh, I moved out here years ago, no one wanted to talk about it. It was about seven or eight years after it happened. I did a lot of history writing, but nothing about Pelican. Nobody told me anything about it. Uh, it was such a horrible uh, situation that, that the town just didn't want it to be talked about. Tom then came out with a book called Dark Noon, which uh, I think is one of, one of the best books I've read. And it's about the sinking of the pelican. And I thought, to, while I have you on the show, ask you about that book. Mm-hmm. And then we'll talk more about the recent things. Sure. What, uh, how did you decide you wanted to do that book? I couldn't get anybody to tell me anything. Well, it was a happy accident because uh, in the uh, September 1st, 2001 issue of Newsday, they published an interview with Irene Stein. And Irene Stein had lost both her husband and her father on the Pelican when it capsized. And it was the 50th anniversary. And I read this interview with Irene Stein. I thought it was fascinating. I really didn't know about it. I hadn't read anything about it for quite some time. And uh, I decided to start asking questions, trying to get more information. What could I find out? I mean, my, one of my first stops was at the, uh, the local history room at the Montauk Library, where Robin Strong was the curator, I guess you would call her. And uh, what she had was not only some information, some of the original reporting that was done by the Daily News. I mean, I was... I was really stunned to discover what a major story this was in September 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 1951. Well, tell us a little bit about it. Well, tell us what the uh, facts are. Yeah, it's 70 years ago on, on September 1st, 1951, a fishing boat named the Pelican left uh, Fort Pond Bay, what was called Fish Shangri-La, the, the, the dock there along with a lot of other head boats, they were called, because you got captains got paid to, to count as many heads as they could on their boat. It was significantly overloaded. There were 65 people who went out, and there really shouldn't have been more than maybe 40 backs. Even better would be 32, 35. And uh, they went about 11 miles off Montauk, and the day had started out very nice. There was no indication that there would be trouble. But this particularly vicious storm started to approach. And, and the a reason why the book is called Dark Noon is that by noon of that day, the sky was very dark, the storm had hit, and the Pelican, very unfortunate, Captain Eddie Carroll, when he decided it was time to get in, 
he had uh, a stroke of bad luck and then his port engine wouldn't start. So he's, he's in this terrible situation where he's got only one engine and a terribly overloaded boat. And he's also to get back to his, his dock, he's got to go into the teeth of the storm. The storm is coming at him and he's got to sail into it. So it was a, every step of the way, something went wrong. It was be the bad luck or bad decision or whatever. And it, uh, finally, it was within sight of the Montauk Lighthouse, the Pelican capsized. Uh, it took one too many hits on the starboard side. And uh, everybody, with the exception of some people trapped in the cabin, went in the water. And the terrible tragedy of it was that of the 65 people who went out, only 19 were rescued. Uh, I think if people read the book Dark Noon, they'll, just, they'll think to themselves, it's a, it's a miracle that even 19 survived. But a uh, big reason why they did is because of the intervention of one a sail, sailboat named the Betty Ann. Uh, that was this couple that literally dragged people up out of the water. And Lester Behan and his boat, uh, I think it was called Bingo 2. And uh, thanks to Les Behan and Bill, uh, 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 I remember his last name, but who was his first mate, they, they got t- 12 people out of the water. The Coast Guard finally arrived about an hour after the capsizing and only one survivor remained in the water. So this was a huge loss of life during peacetime, you know, of a, of a passenger boat or a recreational boat. Once word started to get around, the newspapers from New York made their way out here, the Daily News, the New York Times, the Daily Mirror. Uh, as, as some people may remember, back in the 1950s, New York had something like eight or nine newspaper, daily newspapers. So they came out here, radio stations started to report it. So when I started to do my research, I discovered what a big deal this had been. And, and it seems odd to me there wasn't a book about it. I think from your book, where you mentioned that he had gone out on fishing with with only one engine. Is that correct? Well, he his, his engines, he had done an engine overhaul several months earlier. So he had complete confidence in his engines. It was only when he went, they, they, the storm had hit and they, or was about to hit. And he wanted to go back to, Mo, to Montauk, uh, Port Pond Bay, that he, only his starboard engine worked. And so that was a total shock to him. There's not, not you know, nobody could ever explain it. Was it just bad luck? Well, of all the times for the engine to quit, it was when they were trying to get out of the way of a storm. Was it a rogue wave? It was a, the waves kept getting bigger, you know, as they were making their way uh, towards Montauk and could see, even they could see the lighthouse through the fog and the rain. And uh, they had to make a turn to get around north and, and west to Fort Pond Bay. So the, the ray, waves were getting up to as high as 15 feet. And they, their starboard side was fully exposed. You had people who had gone to the port side of the boat because they wanted to get out of, the, out, of the, out of getting hit by the waves. So that was overloaded on the port side. And really two large waves, one starboard wave turned the Pelican almost all the way over. It was still trying to recover when I got hit with that second wave. And that's the one that put it under. I've seen photographs of it since that show uh, some of the corpses on the floor of the Shangri-La fishing mm-hmm. station. It was a dreadful scene. And uh, Shangri-La closed after that, as I recall. It did. It certainly put a, uh, uh, you know, as, as Bob Tuma observed at the time, he said, this is, this is definitely bad for business. Uh, I mean, it was September anyway, so, so the amount of business was going to go down, but it fell off the table, basically. The fall fishing could still be kind of lucrative for these fellas, and uh, they weren't making a lot of money. Uh, an all-day an all day, uh, headboat cost uh, $4.50. These, none of these guys are getting rich. And um, 
you know, one of the one of the boat captain's sons told me that his father that winter was literally going out and shooting deer to feed his family because it, you know, the, the Montauk fishing business had, had just gone nowhere after the Pelican disaster. Was that uh, one of your more successful books? Sales wise, no, it was not. I mean, one of the challenges the book faced is that even though national headlines were made by the Pelican disaster, it was still a, a regionalized story. You know, it was for people on the East Coast, especially the Northeast, it was of, of interest. People in the Midwest, to the West Coast, what did they care about a fishing boat in 1951 off Montauk? But what's been especially uh, especially grateful for is that the book was published uh, something like 15 years ago, but originally in hardcover. And uh, not a month or so doesn't go by that I don't have somebody contact me or I run into somebody and said, oh, I just discovered your book, Dark New, and I'm really enjoying it, or I really enjoyed it, or it was such, it's a great story. So it had this, this, the kind of legs that some books don't have. I'm, I'm not, I, didn't, I don't think I made a penny on it, but uh, a lot of satisfaction from it. What um, motivated you to become a novelist or a writer of books? A couple of things motivated me. One was was happening to come across a couple of good stories that turned into books. And the other one was losing my job as a newspaper man. So once, once I was on the shelf, so to speak, I said, well, I only know how to do one other thing. Let me see if I can do it right. And that's when I started turning myself to, to writing books. Talk about uh, Blood and Treasure. Blood and Treasure is my latest, came out in April. Uh, it was my latest collaboration with my friend, Bob Drury, and uh, who lived for many years in East Hampton. And it's the story of Daniel Boone and the first frontier, really, the 1760s, 1770s, how he was leading people through the Cumberland Gap, how they built forts in Kentucky, Missouri, Ohio Valley. And I think an untold story about Daniel Boone is how important he was in the American Revolution. Uh, he's, he's never mentioned in the American Revolution. It's like the only part of the war that took place was in Virginia and Boston and New York. But there was a lot of uh, activity, a lot of battles that took place on the other side of the mountains in, in the Western theater of, of the war. And Daniel Boone played a pivotal role in those battles. And I think that all these years, it's been an untold story. So Blood and Treasure tells that story. What about the newest one you're doing? Lightning Now will come out November 2nd. And it's... Uh, it's a really, it's a different story for a couple of reasons. One, it's, I have, I've never done a solo book that's a World War II story before. And this is about a young farm boy from Washington State who enlists right after Pearl Harbor, becomes a pilot. He's on his 44th mission over France in August 1944 when he gets shot down, captured by the Germans. And he's put into this prison where there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other prisoners. And he discovers some of those prisoners, as many as 170 of them, are American pilots who were not sent to POW camps, but had been sent to this prison and were eventually soon after transferred after a five-day grueling train trip with no water, no food, they found themselves in Buchenwald. And an untold story about World War II, which is what Lightning Down tells, uh, through the eyes of Joe Moser, this real pilot who experienced this, is that uh, we had about 170 pilots who were illegally sent to Buchenwald, and the only thing they were left to do, according to the Nazis, was die. And when months went by and they were still surviving, managing to survive, though barely surviving, that's when Hitler personally gave the order to have them executed. They had a week left to live. And what happens after that? You'll have to read Lightning Down to find out. <laughs> Is this fiction or... Based? It's, it's completely true, the story. And 
written through uh, Joe Moser's uh, unpublished memoir, uh, written through the eyes of other prisoners who were there, some of the pivotal figures that were part, even part of the Nazi regime, and also a, a rather brave Luftwaffe senior officer who made it his mission to try and rescue these Americans before they were shot. Have any of your books been made into movies? No, and I've had probably eight or nine books optioned, uh, which means that you give them a year or 18 months to try and do something with them. And sometimes those options, I mean, Amblin, Steven Spielberg's company, optioned my book, Dodge City. And then when their option was over, it renewed the option for another 18 months. They even wrote, had a screenplay written, but I've never had the good fortune to have something actually go before the cameras and see that big money. Well, I hope you do. Um, I do. <laughs> but where, how do, what is your writing style? Do you have a special place in your house where you work? I'm in it right now. I have, you can see some books in the background, and 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 I'm I'm in my office on the second floor of my house in Sag Harbor, and it's kind of almost almost of the rafters lined with books. And this is yeah, this is this is the uh, the the ground zero. This is where this, the uh -huh. the enterprise where I where everything comes from when I write. Uh, are you born and raised in the Hamptons? No, I was born in the Bronx, and uh, I did not come out. I never even knew what the Hamptons, what the Hamptons, or anything about them uh, until I was in my mid twenties, and. Uh, I, I had never even been west, east of the Shinnecock Canal, but uh, I was married then and we decided that we were going to move to East Hampton to Springs because I had read that that's where Jackson Pollock had a house. So on January day, we set off and we start, drove east and we got as far as Sag Harbor when we got hit by a snowstorm. And we found uh, the Harbor Cove Realty and a fellow named Carl Marino was just locking the door. And he said, well, let me show you a rental I have. We saw it, we rented it, and we moved to Sag Harbor. And I've never left. Never left. What do you like about it? It's interesting to ask, answer that question now, because one of the things I liked about it very much 40 years ago was it was, very, it was rather rural. It was small town. Uh, certainly when my kids were born and raised and go to the school system, the, uh, my daughter graduated from Pearson High School in Sag Harbor. Her entire graduating class was 32 students. Uh, so I like that 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 ruralness about it, that country aspect to it. It's it's certainly changed in the last few years. I mean, at, at places always change. It's, it's unavoidable. But uh, probably if I went to some community in Maine, I'd probably revisit Sag Harbor the way it was 20 and 30 years ago. Were you were you here in, in time to see the restoration of a lot of the uh, houses that were in disrepair? Well, yeah, that's been going on. You know, I, I, I can't speak with any familiarity for East Hampton, South Hampton, the other communities, but certainly in Sag Harbor, uh, you see it all the time. You drive up and down Madison Avenue, for example, uh, Glover Street, uh, Redwood, for example. These are, these are, are, are streets in the village of Sag Harbor that have really been transformed in the last decade by a lot of expansion and renovation. Uh, it's a big reason why there's been a lot of controversy in Sag Harbor about the attempts to preserve uh, the historic character of Sag Harbor, because uh, without certain rules and regulations in place, uh, there could be a whole swath of people just knocking houses down. Who cares if it's historic? Just knock it down because I want to put a McMansion on top. Would you hang out anywhere you'd like? <laughs> no. 
I don't. Years ago, there was a pub that my friends and I loved to go to called Nichols in East Hampton, run by Simon Smith and his wife, Janet Palmer. But that closed some years ago. It's still a shell. It's not even never reopened. And I don't hang out. I, 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 I just find uh, I've been a, very busy. So certainly the pandemic, you know, nobody was hanging out during the pandemic. And I just haven't yet, I guess, found the right place that I would want to go to on a regular basis. And, and that's, that's on me. You know, I, I need to make more of an effort because I think, you know, even if I'm a writer of nonfiction and I do a lot of research and, and deal with facts, you know, it's good, it's good to get out and see other people and BS from time to time. What's uh, the most successful book you've written? The most successful book I've written with Bob Drury was called The Heart of Everything That Is, about the Sioux Indian leader, Red Cloud. And the most successful book that I've written as a solo author is Tombstone, which came out in 2020, just last year. And that's been... uh, very successful. Although we'll see what happens with Lightning Down. I'm told the first printing is eighty thousand copies. They're getting it. They're they're having in their indications to them that there's going to be a really big audience for the book. Oh, that's great. You and I go way back, actually. Yep. We, we met probably thirty years ago, at least. And uh, it's been fun to watch the success that you've uh, enjoyed. Well, thank you. I don't really think about it that much because, you know, it's interesting when a book comes out, people are saying, oh, it must be great that you could sit back and relax and think about the book. And if it's selling well, you know, it's on the New York Times bestseller. Blood and Treasure was on the New York Times bestseller list the first week it came out. And but you know what? First of all, the book that's just appearing was finished a year earlier. So you've moved on. And by that point, you're also a year into one or two other books, at least I am. So uh, it's almost kind of surreal. It must be something like when an actor makes a movie and by the time the movie is in post-production and everything else is happening and the movie's actually released, that actor finished shooting that film a year, eight months, 12 months earlier. It's kind of disorienting. I mean, I'm glad for if a book is successful, but it's nothing like I sit back and, and reflect upon it. That's all wonderful. I want to thank you for being on the podcast and, uh, my you friend. don't have to wait six months for it to come out. Okay. <laughs> It'll be out at danspapers.com in about a week and a half. Okay, well, I'll look for it. Take care. Thanks again. Thank you.